So I rarely make themed content, you know, uh, book reviews or interviews that go with the time of year that we're in, like romance books for February, for example. I really like the idea though, and I might foray into that in the future, but oftentimes I just sort of pick up my guests as I do, record the episodes as I do, and there's really no rhyme or reason for when I put these episodes out, with the exception for the authors I have on the show. But when I read this book, I knew the only time to release this episode would be October, specifically right before Halloween, and that happened to be right where this fell into place. I'm so happy I've arranged it with our lovely spooky season, because short of an actual horror book, which, yeah, not for me, this one's got all the wonderful autumnal vibes. Welcome to your favorite book. This week's guest is Max Well Done. Max, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about The Shadow of the Wind. I am really excited for this. Um, This is a book that was not on my radar before, which I'm really surprised by because when I looked this book up, it has like 500,000 Goodreads reviews. (laughs) And I'm like, Mm -hmm. how is this book so well known? And I've somehow never heard of it. It was very strange. Yeah, it's definitely a book lover's book. So I'm happy that I was able to share it with you. I am, I'm so excited too. And you're exactly right. This is a book for book lovers, by a book lover, like you can tell. Um, but before we get into the book itself, Max, I always start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to reading? Of course. Yeah. Um, my name is Max, as you said, and I am uh, most commonly found over on Instagram at Well Done Books. I did start kind of in the literary internet community back in late 2013, actually, where I was making booktube videos. I did that for about five or six years, um, but eventually just kind of personally fell out of love with making videos themselves. It was more the community and the book internet culture that I really, you know, found my joy in and the people that I met and opportunities like this. So I, alongside having that channel, I was also doing bookstagram, but at the time, early 2014 and whatnot. It wasn't really a community in the sense that it is now, which is awesome. It's grown so much. Um, So I've kind of kept that up because I always, in my personal life outside of the book community online, loved photography and whatnot. So this really blended like my passion for reading and, you know, taking photos and then the community that it brought um, into my life. So I've been doing that. Yeah, I guess coming up on almost eight years of being kind of in the book internet community, which is crazy and just so many awesome opportunities. Um, that I've had from that, which has been really great. That is amazing. You're, you're right. Especially in the internet age, I feel like eight years is an eternity. Like that, that's so much time. The internet <laughs> and everything has changed so much. Um, and I like that you mentioned BookTube because um, I tried very, very briefly to make mm-hmm. video content. Video content is exhausting. What was your experience like with it? Yeah, I definitely think people don't realize how much work it is as a, as a, individual content creator on like YouTube, for example, making video content is a very time consuming job, especially with someone who is making content about reading and books. Like first you have to spend the time, the free time that you do have, especially as an adult outside of college, because I started it when I was kind of halfway through college. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot more free time, even though you don't think you would when you're in school, but like you have so much more free time than you have as an adult with a full-time job and having to pay the bills. So, um, it, it's just a lot of work. I mean, you have to read in order to have material to talk about. And back then there wasn't as so much creativity 
you know, blossoming as there is now in terms of the kinds of videos people make, but, you know, talking about what you read each month or doing individual reviews of books you've read. I mean, you have to read the book. You have to think about, at least from my perspective, I really wanted to have something meaningful to say. Um, and then you have to sit down and actually record it, which, you know, I like to think I'm a well-spoken person, but sometimes you have to repeat something four or five times to get it out the way that you want it to sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have to sit down and edit it. And editing for me was like the pitfall. I just don't love editing video. It gets really tiring. Then you have to export it. Then you have to upload it. Then you have to make a thumbnail. I mean, there's a lot to it that people don't realize when you don't have a team of people to help you. Um, so it's a time consuming process and it's a great reward, like having people watch your videos and comment and interact and build a community, um, that I still even now have on Instagram, people that, you know, follow me or message me and say, oh, I read that book because of you from you know, years ago, like that's still really amazing. And I wouldn't have kind of the small, but really loyal platform I have on Instagram now um, without it. But video is a lot of work. And as much as the internet is moving towards video, it's definitely more short form now. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think I've mastered that, uh, that side of it at all. And not sure I necessarily have a passion for it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's great that we're seeing kind of the evolution of it and the, the rise of new creators from that. Right. Absolutely. And you're right. We kind of saw this transition from your longer form of vlog or long form essay kind of content on YouTube and platforms. And now we're seeing things like reels and TikToks, which mm -hmm. I've tried. It's like you said, it, it's very <laughs> difficult to just capture something in a quick little moment. You, you have to ride these constantly changing trends. Like it's a lot. I think, you know, a podcast mm -hmm. and photographs for me is where I tap out. It's it's a lot otherwise. <laughs> um, but Max, one thing I want to ask you about. So, uh, you know, reading your sort of profile and things about you, I ran into the fact that you are a pretty avid movie watcher as well. I am. And mm -hmm. so I'm going to ask you a bit of a question about movies. Can you give me, in your opinion, the best book to movie adaptation and the worst book to movie adaptation. Oh my goodness. You're really putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I told you there'd be no humdingers, but I gave you one. So. <laughs> no, it's okay. I like this. It's a challenge. I'm sure I'm going to leave one out and then I'm going to think about it later and be like, oh, why didn't I say that? So I'm just going to preface with, I'm probably going to just say the first things that come to mind. Um, I really think, gosh, there's probably going to be an obvious one I'm forgetting, but the first one that comes to mind for best is Catching Fire, the sequel to The Hunger Games. I just mm. think that film is a great film and on its own. Um, and then it's also a really solid, loyal adaptation that elevated. I thought the first movie was great too. Um, but I think the second one just really cemented it like as a great film by itself, but also really, yeah, solid adaptation of the material. And I think that's probably like the golden kind of whatever you want to say, like the golden mean of like, it's a good movie by itself. You don't have to have read the material to, to capture everything about it. But if you do love the books, which I think the books are great, it's a really awesome visual adaptation. Um, so that's probably the first one that comes to mind though. I'm sure there's a plenty I'm missing. Um, in terms of the worst, oh my goodness, I don't know. I feel like I do have a, a an ability to block out poor like movie or book experiences so when people ask me like for negative experiences I'm like I probably just like blocked it out of my brain but um there's got to be something I mean I'm really blanking on this you're probably gonna have to cut about a minute of me <laughs> brainstorming out of my audio I'm like I need to look at like lists of bad adaptations because I probably I don't know do you have any that you you're thinking of so I've been very vocal on this show and saying I am not a movie watcher in general I don't watch a lot of film but sure. in the movies that I do enjoy like when I have this conversation with people 
Uh, I find people always come down mm-hmm. on either one of the Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Like they'll be like, mm-hmm. they'll they'll be either Team BBC or Team Kira Knightley. I personally really like the Kira Knightley version because oh, okay. I think it captures the gist of the movie without making it a giant miniseries. I think, you know, there's a talent involved in, you know, distilling something to its essence with that while still being loyal to the material. And I just like anything Pride and Prejudice. I'm happy with that. Um, but yeah, you're right. I guess, you know, it's harder to block out like the poor experiences. Like it's harder to remember. If we're those. thinking in the same vein of, if we think in the same vein of um, like YA dystopian, I think the Divergent series that was so bad they didn't even finish making them. <laughs> like they literally were supposed to make all three or four, whatever it was, into films. And then they just didn't ever make the last one, I think. And it was supposed to go to like TV instead. Mm. And they didn't even do that. I'm not like the biggest fan of the books, but when they were kind of popular, I did read them and enjoy them. And I thought the first movie was okay. But then I don't even know if I saw the second one. Like it just tanked so fast yeah. that you know, compared to the, I think it tried to do what the Hunger Games was doing. Obviously it was very much trying to capture the same feeling of like a strong young adult female protagonist, which Mm -hmm. I think is awesome, but it just somehow didn't live up to it, whether that's budget reasons or it just wasn't as, didn't have as much Right. Didn't they do that with the Percy Jackson movie as well? I feel like that one comes up. Those are bad too, yeah. (laughs) Because I I never read those books, but they're they're well loved in the movie. I remember seeing the movie and I'm like, this is a bad movie. And it made me not want to ever read the books, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first movie I saw, and I don't think I ever saw the second one because the first one came out like not too long after the books were pretty popular. And so it was in its prime and it was just not, not it. But in the opposite effect, another great one, I think, which may be an unpopular opinion, is the series of unfortunate events movie with Mm. Jim Carrey. A lot of people don't like it. And I don't know if it's because I just have a specific nostalgic attachment to it. And I think the soundtrack Mm. is amazing. Um, But I think that that one, they didn't know if they'd be able to make more. So they tied the first three books together and people didn't like how they changed it. But I think as a movie, it works really well and it has some of the best music like I mentioned and like that the ending song like it's just still one of the my favorite things in like film score of the last I don't even know when that movie came out probably 15 yeah. years but um I know they made it for Netflix and I watched the first two seasons or so and I really enjoyed it and I'm glad it exists for like this next generation but I feel like a really nostalgic attachment to that first one and Jim Carrey is just iconic yeah. so you can't really beat him as Count Olaf. Right. He was a great Olaf. I remember not liking that movie just because I was so attached. I was at that stage in my life where it's like, it has mm-hmm. to be exactly like the book. And now I feel like I'm, I've grown up a fair bit and you can sort of get the gist of something and still enjoy it. But when I was the age of serious unfortunate events, I'm like, no, you have to have every single yes. plot point and everything crammed in there. So it's definitely a matter of perspective. Um, but I appreciate your insight on that. I keep looking for movies that'll get me to watch more movies I, I think I just have very specific taste, but that's a for another podcast. Um, but getting <laughs> over to this book in particular, so this book is The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Safon, um, translated from Spanish, written, I believe, in 2001, um, and but takes place in post-Civil War Spain. So 1945 to about 1955 is what we're spanning here in terms of time. And... This book, apparently, it sold really, really well when it came out. Like, it's been translated into all these languages. And somehow I've never heard of it. I just had not seen it before. (laughs) And so I have to ask you, you know, where were you in your life when you first found this? And what were your overall impressions? 
Yeah, I wish I could remember exactly how I found out about it, but I do remember that I first read it in my first year of kind of being on the internet in the book community. Um, so it was just maybe like six months into my book tubing days. And um, I think I probably just heard about it through, at that time I was, I was always an avid reader growing up, but at that time I was really developing like my young adult, adult sen- you know, sensibility as a reader. And I think I was just like gleaning a lot from other people, like what, what are popular books from the last 20, 30 years that aren't the classics because I was doing an English degree. And so I was like, I've got enough of those like under my belt and I'm going to be keeping those under my belt as I finish my degree. So I was like, what what do I want to read and what kind of books are out there that I may not have heard of? Because, you know, when this book came out, I was eight years old, so I wouldn't have read it at that time. So I think mm-hmm. I found it somehow and I picked it up um, and I just immediately like, like the main character, I just immediately fell in love with the book I was reading and had that exact experience. Um, of, you know, almost mirroring what his experience was and just had a fond attachment to it. I think I had read it right after finals, my, my second year of university. So I was like done with class. I was like, I'm just going to fall into a book and start my summer off. And that was this book. And it stuck with me ever since. I like that it came to you at such a pivotal time. And like you, I was also an English major. And I feel like you're so inundated with classics and things that you have to read that it's hard to find a book that you can pick up for pleasure and just kind of fall into. And remember, you know, why you chose that English major in the first place, like why you fell in love with books Mm -hmm. to begin with. And it's easy to feel removed from that. But you're, you're right that this is the kind of book you can absolutely fall into. Um, So for everyone, if you're like, myself, and you've never heard of this book, allow me to give you a brief summary. So as I mentioned, this takes place in post-Civil War Spain. It centers uh, Daniel, who is the son of a bookshop owner. Um, Daniel finds a mysterious book entitled The Shadow of the Wind by Julian Carax. I mean, there's probably a French pronunciation, Um, Julian Carax. And he finds himself entrenched in the life and the mysteries of this unknown writer and is sort of thrust into the surrounding family drama. It's part mystery, part thriller, part saga. It's It really sort of defies genre, and I really like that about it. Um, and I, you're pretty um, active on Goodreads, and so you ca- sort of have cataloged the number of times you've read this book. Has <laughs> this book changed for you over time? Surprisingly, no. Every time I'm worried that I, when I pick it up to reread it, that I'm going to somehow fall out of love with it, because I have definitely had that experience with books where it's just that first encounter is like so transformative or impactful that you have this really skewed view of it. And then you read it again and you're like, I respect it or I appreciate it, but I don't have that same oomph that Mm -hmm. I had the first time. I've read this book five times now, I think. And every time I just immediately know like, oh, yep, this is like, it's like returning home to my favorite place that I've never been and just feels comforting. So um, definitely you know, in terms of my experience with it, it's a little bit different every time because I kind of have a bad memory and there's a lot that happens in this book. So there's always some plot point where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can, how did I forget that happened when it's such a pivotal Mm -hmm. plot point? But it's fun because every time I read it and I give myself some distance between reading it, I fall back in love with it and I get to re almost experience it with new eyes and at different ages have different experience with it um, and see who I, you know, like or dislike or identify more with, which is, it was always really fun. And it's just a fun story. It's just a a page turning, exciting story that I love to get lost in. It's absolutely page turning. That's the the right word for it. So 
to let everyone know, this is not a, a long, long book. My edition is just shy of 500 pages, about 450 or so. So not a terribly long book, but it's enough that it really packs in so many different plot points. Like you're right, there, there's so much going on here. And I feel like this is the kind of book I'm going to want to reread because you get sucked into the plot of it and you find yourself skimming and, you, and, and you're like, oh, no, no, what happens? And you get... And that's when you tend to ignore those finer prose points, which is a disservice because this book is beautifully written. It, the prose is yes. lovely and it makes me want to revisit Barcelona. Have you ever been to Barcelona? No, it is like my number one most wanted place to visit because of this book. And I actually, my edition, I don't know what edition you have, but my edition has a map in the back of like mm -hmm. places from the story with a like walking tour that you can do. And I like, I know someday I'm going to have to do that and visit the sites and, you know, see the places through their eyes. Cause it feels like a character. And that's another huge part of the book that I love is the city feels like a character. Mm -hmm. It's just so atmospheric and you just fall into the story because you feel like you're there with them. Um, and I've always, ever since I read this book, I was like, I need to go and visit Barcelona. It's I, I want to, I specify revisit Barcelona because I have been to Barcelona and I'm going to give you all a brief travel story of my <laughs> ill-fated trip to Barcelona. It did not go very well. Um, I was, it was, oh gosh, 2012. So I was in high school and we had just come back from 30 days in India visiting grandparents. So we were exhausted from travel already, 30 days in India. And our travel tickets were booked in such a way that we decided to spend two days as a family in Barcelona. We're like, okay, two days, you know, that's the conducting flight. Let's make a weekend out of it. Um, but we were so exhausted. We immediately got food poisoning. Um, I had an episode on a train underground where it was really, really hot. And I fainted on the train and a very nice lady in Barcelona uh, revived me. So shout out to that woman, wherever she may be. But it was not... <laughs> the greatest trip. I didn't even get to see a lot of the major sites in Barcelona because I was sick in bed most of it. So this book really made me feel like, okay, I need to come back here. And I saw that walking tour in the map and I'm like, now I see what all the Lord of the Rings people, when they do their treks through Mordor, like I can see what <laughs> the appeal of that. Absolutely. Because I feel like it, he incorporates from my understanding, at least of Barcelona, you know, sites that he incorporates places that have been around since this book takes place, you know, almost 80 years ago, like that were mm -hmm. there that are well-known places like cathedrals and parks and things, but it doesn't feel like he's name dropping them. It just feels like part of the city and like places you want to see through your own eyes, but he does a great job of at least putting it through their perspectives. For sure. And, you know, the prose really brings all of this to life. This book is, you know, it has a lot of substance to it. So whenever I talk about the style of a book, I have to preface, this is not a book where it's style over substance, but this book mm -hmm. really captures like almost that dark academia aesthetic with the the bookshops and the and the winding streets and the old mansions and it's really an atmosphere you can get lost in and I absolutely loved that and in a way I think it makes up for some of the thinner parts of the book which for me are some of the characters in this book. There are a lot of characters in this book and some of them are very very memorable and we'll talk about a couple in particular but Overall, some of the characters, we meet so many people, and I feel like we don't really get a chance to get to know them as well as we otherwise would with a smaller cast. Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, as much as I'm biased for this book and I love it and I think the writing is beautiful, it somehow balances like genre fiction and literary fiction in a really interesting way, which might be mm -hmm. why it appeals to so many readers and it's had such a broad readership. I think that every time I read it, I still, and as I read more and more books in between my rereads, like I'm able to see like the critical side of things and still love it for what it is. But yeah, I think that there's some underdeveloped characters, particularly the female characters in this book are not the most fleshed out. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't really know what to do with that, but I recognize that, yeah, there's not a lot of substance to some of these characters or there's just so many side plots that incorporate into the larger plot, but they're like detours that are yeah. kind of contained stories that are really interesting and stand on their own almost. But, you know, at the end you're like, back to the main narrative and then some of that stuff is only you know brought in a little bit later and not you know fully incorporated but I still love it because it feels like you're getting all these novellas almost together and you get these mm -hmm. different points of view and you spend time with them um and it's all sort of cohesive because of the writing style and the and the yeah. feeling that every every page evokes right regardless of what narrative you're reading about because I mean I don't think it's a spoiler to say like some of these sections are like long passages from diaries, some are letters, mm -hmm. some are people speaking to, to the narrator and it kind of transitions into their voice. Um, so it's just a really interesting mix of narrative styles. Um, but I think that in that sense, like we don't get to spend as much time with some of them. And so they feel a little bit like plot devices yeah. rather than fully formed people, which I totally recognize. But at the same time, it serves the story style, like the Gothic kind of, um, way that you would tell the story feel it feels like it almost feels like this book was written 150 years ago not 20 years ago because of the, right. the the way that he decides to tell it and the the tone and the atmosphere that he's evoking it feels like a a gothic romance from back in the day but with a modern sort of sensibility and that's a perfect way of putting it because it's got that gothic sensibility but the prose is still very approachable in a modern yes. way like this is an easy book to read i i read this book i'm a notorious procrastinator but i read the last like 300 pages of this book like last night stayed up late to finish it and there's such a joy in staying up late to finish a book like it makes me feel like a kid again <laughs> and i felt that with this book and I like what you mentioned about the female characters in particular, because I do feel like they are a bit like plot devices and, you know, are they don't have a lot of agency on their own. They're assisting some of the male characters as mm -hmm. they fulfill their destinies. And that's kind of what we see in this book. You know, you can make of that what you will. Although I think Nuria is a very interesting character, especially as yes. we get to know her. I'd say she's probably our most interesting female character. I think if I had to pick a favorite character from this book, I mean, probably one of many, but Fermin is one of my favorite side characters. Like he adds this wonderful amount of levity. He's absolutely flawed. He's very irreverent, very off color, mm -hmm. but in a dark story, he adds this very necessary levity. And I loved reading his conversations with Daniel and how he's sort of a surrogate father for Daniel. I just really enjoyed his sections. Yeah, he's absolutely a standout character that I think about a lot. And I like him for all of his flaws um, and his strengths. I mean, I recognize that he's a flawed person, but I don't think the author's writing him to necessarily, for us to necessarily agree all the time with him. He's supposed to be sort right. of, a, like you said, an off-color comic relief that you recognize as sort of silly, but then he'll bring in this deep wisdom that counteracts it. And that's where the strength lies, I think, in his character is that we're kind of caught off guard when he's he's his sincere wise self and that isn't 
you know, him 100% of the time. But when it happens, it's more strong because of that, which I think is really great. But he's just also hysterical. He's so funny. And just, you know, his his life experience that he brings in and his observations on women, you know, they, they add something to the story. And when you have a character like Daniel, who's coming of age in many ways and figuring himself out, um, although I did want more of Daniel's actual father-son relationship because that that just seemed like in the little bits we were given that's such a tender bond that I wanted more of. But the mm-hmm. the parts that we do get with Fermin were very memorable. And yeah, I just, it's hard for me to find fault with this book because, you know, even when we talk about thin characters or as we get into some of the plot devices as we talk about the climax and the ending, I I just this is a book for book lovers. It's a love letter to literature. There's, I, I felt for Daniel when he was looking at that pen that Victor Hugo owned and he just wants to have that perfect pen to write his masterpiece. And I'm like, damn it. That's me in a book. Like I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to bring this over a little bit to talking about, we talked about the atmosphere. We've talked about the characters and now I want to bring this over to the plot. So we'll start out a little bit spoiler free, but then I'll give everybody, you know, ample warnings. Like this is a book, I mean, spoilers. I want you all to read this. It's excellent. And if you haven't, I don't want to spoil the ending for you. So I'll let you know, you know, where to look in the timestamps appropriately. Um, But essentially, so plot wise, this book is combining Daniel's narrative, discovering his own purpose, along with the story of Julianne Carax. It's set up as like this slow detective story. At first, we're having Daniel and Fermin interviewing a host of characters, you know, family members, friends, people from the past, and sort of piecing together this narrative with the little bits that they're getting. It's got a lot of that old fashioned detective story that I really enjoy. Um, But then I'll sort of mark it here. There is a part in the story where we're given a a larger reveal um, through a narrative written by another character, which gives us a lot of backstory. So if you guys don't want any spoilers, stop now. Um, So (laughs) Max, I want to ask you, what do you think about the device of having so much revealed through these letters by an external character? Because I struggled with that because on one hand, the letters were beautifully written and they really fleshed out some ideas that we had. But then I also think, is this a cop out? Is this info dumpy? Like, could we have been given these insights in a more organic manner? Or am I being nitpicky and should I just be enjoying the beautifully written letters? I, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think that this time I read it when we read her long, I mean, it's, I don't even know how many pages in my book, but it's many dozen pages of her Mm -hmm. letters written in the same exact prose as, I guess, Ruiz Zafon's prose of the Mm -hmm. more traditional narrative, Um, but also her own knowledge of things that aren't her firsthand experiences. Like, there's a suspension of disbelief that I just have to go with that I'm okay. Personally, I'm okay with because it, it's a book that to me, like the parts all add up to something even greater. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that I recognize that people might be critical of that. Like this doesn't seem like this is a loophole. Like how would she know some of this stuff? And I just suspend my disbelief because there is a sort of, even though this book is not a fantasy novel, there is a sort of fantastical, like magical feeling about the book, like that, you you know, books, your reverence for books and writing, I guess, and storytelling is so revered that we can suspend our disbelief to say, well, these stories are coming together in a way that, you know, only Daniel could never see 
you know, coming and, and we just have to go along for the ride. That's how I view it. And that, that's why I'm okay with it because the, the journey is worth the, the, you know, the, the way that he chooses to tell it for me. And it's just so much fun to read about, but I do, um, I do critically see the side of it. That's like, well, that's convenient. And, mm-hmm. you know, okay. So a lot of storytelling is convenient. I don't feel like anything is totally un I don't know, I guess unrealistic, but like, um, flawed. It's just, whether you're not whether or not you're willing to suspend a little bit of disbelief. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I, I came to a similar conclusion as you where you're right, this book isn't a fantasy. It 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 isn't even what you'd really call speculative fiction. It's more in that mystery, almost thriller vein. But mm-hmm. it does have this sort I think that gothic atmosphere just lends mm-hmm. a certain amount of magic to it. And so with the found narratives, the letters, you know, the testimonials, things coming together. You, there is that suspension of disbelief and I was happy to go with it. It's just sort of taking a step back and being like, okay, if I had mm-hmm. to nitpick, but yes. you know, when you, when you admit it as nitpicking, that's a testament to how good the book is. <laughs> Even the pen, the, the plot device of the pen coming into both of their lives. Like what mm-hmm. are the odds of that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think people are going to nit. People might not nitpick that because they see that as a convention of literature of like, well, yes, it's not realistic to real life, but it's not impossible mm-hmm you know, it, it all made sense in how it, it arrived in each person's life. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, it's very unlikely. And so for that, it gains a sort of mythic quality. And we don't nitpick things like that in myth, myth or, you know, gothic yeah. you know, horrors, things like where it's, you know, it has to happen that way, because that is almost like ordained and fated. There's this sort mm-hmm. of like, larger fate and destiny to the book and the story in general so in those instances where it's like well this seems convenient I just kind of chalk it up to like that's the mystery of life and that's kind of that tone that the story is trying to get you to really like absorb and be be surrounded by when you read it right exactly and you're you're right I mean the the book even acknowledges you know we're all connected in these ways like they have the characters even say statements like that and Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of encompasses those narratives. And so since we are speaking freely about spoilers, we're revealed that the the man that Daniel believes is burning all of Carax's books, the man with the blackened face is Carax himself, trying to sort of eliminate his own legacy, which is very powerful. Um, parts of that you can kind of see coming. But I have to tell you one thing. One of the plot twists in this book, I 100% saw coming. And when it, but even when it happened, I was still like, oh no, I was hoping I was wrong. And that was the big reveal about Julian and Penelope. And I was Uh. like, I could see this coming, but I didn't want it to be that way. But there it is. (laughs) (laughs) What tipped you off? Because that's the one that when I reread it, I often forget because I remember them ending up together. Mm-hmm. And like that being dramatic, but I forget that that's the crux, which I don't know how I forget that every time. And I probably won't now that we're talking about it and like, it's yep. going to be ingrained in my brain. But, but when I re- have reread it over the years and had time in between, that's the moment where I'm like, oh yeah, it's not just that they're not supposed to be together, but they're like, they're related. <laughs> yeah. But what, what tipped yeah. you off? Or I'm curious, was it just because that's a trope that you kind of saw coming or there was moments in the text that like hinted at it to you? It's a little of both. So the first thing that tipped me off was we are established that um, Penelope's father, later found to be Julian's father, we're shown his sort of womanizing tendencies. We're shown that he has a bit of a conversational Mm. relationship with Julian's mom, like that comes up a little bit and they'll be talking off in a corner a little bit. And we know that (laughs) Julian's paternity is unknown until now. We also know that like 
he's taking a special interest in this boy and sort of brings him in and takes him away from his, you know, provincial background. So all of that, I think on its own wouldn't have tipped me off. But in addition to what I saw in the text, this book to me reminded me a lot of another book that I also really, really love. And that is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, to me, th- this feels like a lighter, more approachable version of that kind of mm-hmm. book. And in that book, we do see some other, you know, ill-fated sibling relationships that go wrong in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. And so like I was reading into the stylistic, you know, the melodrama and all of the family entanglements and just the just the high octane grief here. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I can see where this yeah. is going. I had that sense of foreboding and then it happened. And I was like, Ooh, OK, <laughs> so I guess that's where I saw it. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. It's funny you bring that book up because that's one of the few books on my shelf that I have to read that or 100 Years of Solitude, I should say, is one book that I have, but I've been putting off since I got it because I just feel like it's intimidating. And I've heard very mixed things about it, like people either really passionately love it or cannot get into it. Um, but I would love to read it. And you saying that this reminded you in a way of that makes me more encouraged to read it and pick it up. Um Maybe this it's fall. It feels really, like a fall book. This is another yes. book that I feel like is very autumnal. And I'm always like, well, if you're going to read it, like dark, especially when you mentioned dark academia and kind of like the gothic vibes, I'm like, this is the perfect book to read in the, the fall months as we transition into winter. And like, I don't know, especially because I live in California where we don't really get winter anyway. So I'm like, this will make, this will transport me elsewhere where that it feels like we actually have seasons. Lucky you. You don't want winter. Trust me. I live in Chicago. You don't want winter. <laughs> Oof, no. <laughs> Um, but you're right. This book is beautifully autumnal, which is why I'm glad we're recording this, you know, on the precipice of October. And this episode will be out in October for everybody. And you're right. Um, 100 Years of Solitude, probably the first book I'd recommend for somebody who really enjoys this book. I mean, we'll get into more recommendations. Um, but I think it is a very dense, very difficult read. I mean, a lot of people, the main thing they'll point to is that all the characters have the same name through the generations. And Mm. it's so hard to keep track with who's who. It's like, if you think Wuthering Heights is bad for that, like these are literally the same two names repeated over and over Mm. through like six or seven generations. Um, I personally loved One Year, Hundred Years of Solitude. It is definitely not an easy read. Like I devote like a solid couple of weeks like a little bit at a time to sort of digesting that. It's also much more magical and speculative, but yes, the the tone and the melodrama. And I think the fact that these books are both, you know, by Spanish writers, you know, brings you all kind of together with that. Yeah, definitely. And so speaking of uh, books that, you know, we'd pick up and recommend, I mean, I mentioned 100 Years of Solitude, but Max, are there other books that you would recommend for people who loved The Shadow of the Wind? Hmm. I feel like that's really hard because I always am wary and myself like receiving recommendations based off of favorite things because then you're always reading it with the same mindset. But but if I would be like generous enough to say don't read the these recommendations as like read alikes, but just in the same for me at least in the same vein of like the experience I had reading mm-hmm. them. Um for me, I feel like The Goldfinch would be a really good one. It has mm. a piece of art as its center. I think books that center around like some sort of artifact, whether that's yeah. like a book or, um, you know, a piece of art or whatever it is. I think those are always really interesting to see not only if they're fictional or real, 
the characters' relationships to them, like how they intertwine through, they, those things persist through history, whereas the people that interact with them don't always. So I feel like the Goldfinch does. And I think it has a sort of like, I don't know. I feel like the the tone and the atmosphere of that book has a similar vibe to this. Like you kind of see it through certain lens, like almost, you know, like sepia toned lens. Like mm-hmm. I, I think in that sense, but I don't think they're similar by any means. It's just the experiences I had with reading them. I also love that book. I'm trying to think of anything else that comes to mind. I mean, it's really hard to compare this to anything else in my brain because it just stands on its own. But I mean, the obvious, you know, exciting thing about this book is it's this first in a quartet of books. Mm. Um, So there's other books that you can read in relation to this one. I would always personally recommend starting with this one. Um, But there's The Angels Game, which is sort of like a, if you don't start with this one, you could start with that book. Um, But I wouldn't start with any of the other ones. I would start with either The Shadow of the Wind or The Angels Game. And then there's The Prisoner of Heaven, which is almost a direct sequel slash I don't, it, it's, it's very much tied to this book, but you would not want to mm-hmm. read it before you read The Shadow of the Wind. And it's a much shorter volume. Um, so if you have read The Shadow of the Wind and you you enjoyed it, I, I don't think it's the best book ever, but The Angel's Game gives you, or sorry, The Prisoner of Heaven gives you a few more moments with some of these characters. So if you liked them enough, it's worth picking up. Mm-hmm. And then The Labyrinth of the Spirits is the fourth book in the series. And it's a large tome. And I would say read that after you've read all three of the other ones. Um, mm. there's probably plenty of resources online too, to how to read these books in what order, but I would personally recommend starting with the shadow of the wind because I just think it's like the quintessential and, you know, well-loved modern novel that you can totally read on its own and be done with it. But if you want more material from the author, there's plenty more out there. Which is so good to hear because I, I've been vocal on this show. I have a no series rule simply because I love people Mm. who come on the show and they're like, I want to talk about Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, that is 2000 pages that I do not have Mm. time. Um, But so typically I say, you know, either we'll pick talk about book one in a series or maybe a whole series that I've already read. This is probably the first book that's been book one in a series where I have wanted to pick up all the rest of the books just because I enjoyed the style so much. I'm sorry, Shadow and Bone. I was done after the first book. I do not <laughs> care. <laughs> but th- these books, I absolutely care. And I'm totally going to pick up the rest of the books. I'm glad you give me kind of a reading order. And I think that makes sense. I've mm-hmm. heard people say things with like the Narnia books, like which ones you're supposed to start with. Oh, yeah. and publication versus time order. But that seems way more complicated. This seems a little more approachable yes. that way. I was going to say, I think my reading recommendation that I just gave is just the publication order. I don't, okay. I'm don't. i not 100% sure. But I know this one was published first, mm-hmm. I think. Actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure this one was published first. So I think I just read them in the order they were released, which makes sense because you won't get spoilers. Because I think mm-hmm. if you read them in, in any order, people say you can introduce yourself into this series as it's like the Cemetery of Forgotten Books series. So that that is kind of the central theme in any mm-hmm. order. But I really don't agree with that. I think there are definitely spoilers in later books for this book. So maybe that won't deter your reading experience. But I think if you just read them in the order that he published them, um, and then he's releasing, well, sadly, he passed away last year, but Mm. they're releasing a unreleased series of short stories that he wrote that he wanted to be published. I I might be misquoting it, but like, he knew he was going to be here. He was in the process, sadly, of dying. And so he kind of compiled some unreleased material in a series of short stories that is coming out this later this fall and they are 
Again, I think it's probably best if you've read the four books or at least The Shadow of the Wind before reading that, just to have a deeper appreciation for it. Not that it would spoil anything, but that I'm really looking forward to reading after I do my now reread of this series because of rereading it for this podcast. I'm like, now I need to read the rest of them again because I just (laughs) love them so much. And it's fall. It's going to be winter. It's like perfect time to just you know, tuck into them. So that's what I'll be doing. I need to make time for these as well. I'm, they're definitely on my radar. And Max, the last thing I want to bring up with you, this is a bit of an odd thing, but so I mentioned earlier that I bought a copy of this book and this is my nice little copy. And um, it's a nice little, I really like the cover. It's really nice. And this is the same copy that I got from my library, except my library copy on the spine has a big old sticker on it saying YA library. This huh. is not a YA book to me. I at no. first, you know, in the first like couple hundred pages when it's, you know, Daniel growing up and you know, finding a first love and all of that, you kind of get that. But as this book goes, I'm like, no, 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 this is not YA. Like, yes, the character is 17 years old, but that doesn't automatically make a book YA. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I think this would be a good book if a avid young adult reader wanted to branch into adult literature and felt confident picking up an adult title. I think because the writing is beautiful, but still very accessible, it could easily be a good transitional novel for them into like adult literary fiction or whatever this is categorized. Mm -hmm. Again, like you said, it kind of defies genre, so I'm not sure, but... I don't think of it as a YA book, but I don't also think of that as like a negative title. I just, I never would have thought to put it in the YA section because I think that if any anyone too young or not as confident in like their reading got this, it might just be discouraging and, you know, intimidating. And so, yeah. and yeah, some of the themes are quite intense and there's some pretty villainous people in it. And, you know, that's not to say young adults can't read that, but I think it has to be the right reader. Um, yeah. But generally, no, I think of it as definitely an adult title that, um, you know, could could kind of bridge the gap for people who are looking to um, get into reading more adult literary fiction. Right. And I, I like how you make the distinction between the reader and the genre, um, because, you know, a young adult could definitely read this book, a 16, 17, however old bo- mm-hmm. reader could really enjoy this book. I think I would have liked this book a lot at that age. But would I put this book confidently on your YA teen shelf for like any teen to kind of just pick up without suspecting and not realizing some of the themes that we discussed earlier. I mean, in addition to some of those spoiler themes, this book has that heavy trauma of war and conflict and post-traumatic stress disorder for some of these characters. It is a very heavy, dark book Mm -hmm. in spots. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't call this a YA book, although I think if you have a interested enough young adult reader, they'd probably really enjoy this. He does have, I have not read them, but he does have, from my understanding, maybe a half a dozen young adult novels. Mm. So it could also be just the fact that maybe he gets misshelved or all of his books get shelved in that section. But he does have some pretty well-loved, from my understanding, and like um, largely read young adult novels. Um, I think in Spain, he's quite popular in that that category. So it could just be kind of a misunderstanding. But yes, I would not put it this particular title in the YA section. Right. No shade against my local librarians. I love you. But 
<laughs> it happens. And so, Max, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved getting the opportunity to read this book, and you've introduced me to a whole new world of books by this author that I have to pick up and have to make time for, and I'm always grateful for that. Um, but before we close out, where can we find you and the book reviewing that you do? You can find me at on Instagram at WellDoneBooks. Um, from there, I think I have a link in my bio to my Goodreads where I'm pretty active, like you mentioned. So those are probably the best places to find me for anything bookish on the internet. You definitely should follow him if you don't already, because you are very active on Instagram. You're reading, you know, you're in the Booker of the Month Club with me, and we're plowing through some of those heavier reads. I think you've made your way through the whole list, and I'm impressed by that. I am still mm -hmm. on book three or wherever we are, but <laughs> um, but I am just so grateful for this time with you, and thank you so much. Everyone, check this book out. You will not regret it. If you just want a book about books and really putting you in that autumnal frame of mind, like The Shadow of the Wind is definitely worth your time.